Good morning. Let me start by providing a little context for this message, its importance to me, and the weight that it carries in my heart. It was planted in me a long time ago, and I pray that now it has aged a little, that now that it has aged a little, it is as refreshing a wine to you as it has been to me this week. Roughly 10 years ago, I attended my second Promise Keepers event. Although every part of the weekend inspired me, I was particularly affected by the sessions of worship through a song. Looking back, I can say it wasn't the large crowd, uh, the full singing, or the rocking music that touched me so much. I really enjoyed all of those things, but the faint realization that that crowd represented several races, cultures, and backgrounds, that deeply impacted me. And there we were, all in one place, singing one song of praise to our one God. I was amazed at the reality that I was a member in a multitude and that we were praising God. And I thought of heaven and I thought of eternity. Scriptures such as Revelation 7, describing the countless multitude robed in white from all tribes, tongues, and nations standing in front of the throne of the Lamb. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where we are told that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These scriptures were alive to me like never before. It was so refreshing, and yet it was so poignant. It was refreshing because this strong sense of unity with the body of Christ was kind of not typical for me. And it was refreshing because at that point in my life, I really needed to know that I was part of something bigger. It was poignant to me because this unity in the body of Christ that I've so strongly felt was not a typical experience for me. It didn't seem right that this could be achieved at a coliseum in Atlanta, but not at church back home. Not any church I had attended to that point yet. Remember that was 10 years ago, so I'll, before I came here, so no worries. In the following days, I continued to wonder about that connection that I felt to Christ and his body while at the conference. And my desire and interest in how it happened and why it happened, it began to grow. 
And one day the Holy Spirit really drew my attention to John chapter 17, especially the last part in which Jesus prays for all who will believe in him through the apostles' message. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This is strangely familiar and strangely similar to another verse that maybe you've heard once or twice. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Remember now, I wanted to know more about this close connection, the oneness that I experienced with fellow worshipers and the connection to all believers who had ever lived and who have ever served Christ because I wanted more of it. But did you catch the last parts of verses 21 and 23 of this John chapter 17? They unexpectedly stood out to me. Long story short, I realized the calling on my life. I knew that this oneness in Christ, if I could somehow promote it, that I would be doing my part in sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Well, the natural questions to me were, well, what is oneness? What does it look like? How can we achieve it? Again, the Holy Spirit focused my attention. This time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which had always been a very important and intriguing passage to me. Anyway, but now I found a sense of mission and purpose in it. Uh, the twelfth verse provides a nice overview of the entire chapter. It reads, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. I encourage you to visit this chapter again soon and really think about the connection of the body and its interrelationships, but only after thinking about something else with me first. I've got to be honest, when given the opportunity to share this message, I really, really, really wanted to dig right into many of my thoughts about the function and dysfunction of the body. I wanted to draw parallels between our own physical bodies and what Paul was teaching us about you and me as members of the body of Christ, especially in regards to the way our physical members, like our arms, our legs, lungs, and so forth, how they just simply respond 
to the direction from our brains without arguing back? Or don't they? Some of our backs today are saying, nope, not today. Some of our lungs are saying, you only get 20% from me today, bud. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. In fact, digging in and preparing for this only overwhelmed me. And in speaking with Brad about it, he acknowledged it's kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant, ain't it? Absolutely. So the question arises, where to start? In the body of Christ, there are two basic kind of relationships. I've heard our relationship with God is described as vertical, and our relationship with each other described as horizontal. And since Jesus gives the priority to what is rightly called the great commandment, or the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, I think it makes sense that any meaningful and useful discussion about the interrelationships, me to you, us between each other, can only begin with a discussion that we as members have with the head, God the Son, the true vine, Jesus Christ. Please stand as we listen to Jesus describe how the men with him in the last days of his ministry on earth were related to him. We go to John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. I had not come, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will send to us this morning the Counselor, the Spirit of truth, and bear witness to us about yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love this passage, John 15. As many times as I have read it or heard it, though, I never took the time to make sense of one particular verse that always seemed to me an abrupt and out-of-place thought. Verse 3. In the midst of this vine and branches imagery hops out there and says something about being clean because of Jesus' words. I mean, by itself, it always made sense enough to me. But in the context of the passage, it left me a little puzzled. Yeah, sure, I'm, I'm made pure by your words, Jesus. I, you know, you clean up the sin in my life. I get it. But what does that have to do with pruning? And especially, what does it have to do with pruning me? Or what does it have to do with the imagery of the vine and branches anyway? Or any of this other stuff? Well, knowing that the top three rules of Bible interpretation are context, context, and context, I began to search all the information I had available with the premise that there must, in fact, be a connecting and relevant thought to the overall passage here in verse 3. I started with BibleGateway.com. I've used it before. It's, uh, it's a real useful tool. It allows you to switch from translation to translation real quick. It has foreign language versions and it provides a good deal of uh, Bible study tools. All at a click. So um, as I was switching from the NIV to the ESV, my eye caught a footnote on verse 2. Not verse 3, but verse 2. 
it said, the Greek for prunes also means cleans. Well, cut off my legs and call me shorty. <laughs> Ask Brad about that one. There it was, the connection that made this thought flow. So I read, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Okay. But then I read it this way. Let me try the other side of the equation. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. My attention was immediately taken back to something I read earlier from Merrill Tenney's commentary on John. Quote, In this section of the farewell discourse, I guess that's the theological name of these last uh, conversations Jesus had with his disciples, so now you can go tell everybody. In the farewell discourse, Jesus knew his disciples would constitute a distinct body or community with a definite function. And he wished to prepare them for the change that his departure would make in their manner of living. Viewed from the standpoint of the writer and his time, that's John, this section previews the church and its development in the post-resurrection period. Though the word church does not appear here. End quote. In other words, this passage, as do all passages, first needs to be understood in the context of when, where, and to whom it was spoken before we can make any useful application to our own personal lives today. So, here's the facts. John 15 was spoken to the 11 after Jesus had shared the Passover with them. Judas had already gone out from them. He was the branch that was cut off, thrown in the fire, and they were possibly en route from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. I don't know if that's the right direction in Jerusalem or not. See the end of chapter, uh, chapter 14 where Jesus says, let's go, for proof that they may have been en route from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. The commentators that I've read all agree that it is very possible that the great golden vine of the temple was in view during Jesus' discourse, and that Jesus very well may have been using it as a means of teaching truths about himself. One commentator stated that perhaps the moon was shining on it and you know, provided the, the vine was glinting in the moonlight. So it's like, I've never heard of this, this great golden vine, so let me look it up. Well, I found a, a description. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, 
in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 15, chapter 11, described this golden vine as follows. The doors of Herod's temple were adorned at, with embroidered veils, with their flowers of purple and pillars interwoven. And over these, but under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine, with its branches hanging down from the great height, the largeness and fine workmanship of which was a surprising sight to the spectators, to see what vast materials there were and with what great skill the workmanship was done. I read on in another place from the Institute for Hebraic Christian Studies that the Mishnah, we can, anyone want to know more about it? Ask Bob Miller over here. The Mishnah, which is the written form of what is known as the Oral Torah in Rabbinic Judaism, says that the people would sometimes make a free will offering by purchasing a golden leaf, berry, or cluster, which the priests would then attach to this vine. Often those who gave generously to the temple had their names inscribed on the golden leaves. This was a custom that all were familiar with in Jerusalem. And that quote. Jesus here was driving it home to the eleven that they were specifically chosen and prepared, readied and cleaned and pruned for the express purpose of producing lasting fruit. Even that great golden vine made out of gold, tried by fire, it will be done away with. It will return to its most basic elements. I guess chemi chemically speaking that is a little bit of an oxymoron, but since gold is an element, but it will, it will be done away with, thrown into the fire and burned up. But not the lasting fruit that Jesus was about to talk about. I imagine Jesus saying, guys, I am the perfect stock planted in humanity. My Father has perfectly prepared me for this time, and I am ready. And I have made you ready at the appointed time. You are branching out from me. It will still be me in you and through you, and you will obey me and love me. It's going to start here and go through all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I think this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 11 when he is speaking of his joy and his 11 budding apostles' joy being complete or full. I think Jesus is looking ahead to the better country, a heavenly one, and seeing his 11 friends completely restored and there with him, along with the countless multitudes that stretch as far as the eye can see, lifting their newly learned song to the Lamb in complete corporate unity. This analogy of the vine and branches and fruit and pruning 
really whetted my appetite for a more technical understanding of grape growing. What, what was about this process of growing and maintaining a vineyard, especially the utility of the pruning process. I found a book through Google Books titled Manual of American Grape Growing by U.P. Hendrick, written in 1919. And wouldn't you know it, there were entire chapters devoted to pruning. Amazed. I, I was taken aback. I read about how the vitality, the quality, the distribution, and the overall worth of the fruit heavily depended on the knowledge, the skill, and the art of the pruner. Rather than explain my specific responses to some of the things that I read, let me just share some excerpts from this book. Uh, forgive me for the busyness of these next few slides, but uh, I just felt strongly led to share them. Now, as this first excerpt is read, think about God's desire to see that we all come to maturity in Christ, that the entire body is grown up together in him. Proper pruning of vines in their first year in the vineyard, which as we have seen, consists of the cutting of young plants back severely, brings the vines in productive bearing a year or two years earlier than they would have borne had the pruning been neglected. In other words, they start producing fruit sooner than they would have just left to their own. This early pruning, since it is done with an eye to the vigor of each vine, ensures greater uniformity in the growth and productiveness of the vineyard. Uniformity thus brought about is important not only for the time being, but for the future development of the vines, since weak vines, if unpruned, are stunted and may require years to overtake more vigorous vines in the vineyard. Remember Jesus said to the eleven, you are the branches, not you are the shoots. These guys were pruned so that they may be fruitful and multiply. Human strength and beauty would not be the means through which they would multiply. God's pruning them back, severely even, would be. Growers of all fruits Next excerpt. Growers of all fruits soon learn that excessive vegetative vigor is not usually accompanied by fruitfulness. Too great vigor is indicated by long, leafy, unbranching shoots. Key word, unbranching. Some fruit growers go so far as to say that fruitfulness is inversely proportionate to vegetative vigor. There are several methods of diminishing the vigor of the vine, as withholding water and fertilizers, stopping tillage, the method of training, and by pruning. Pruning is used to decrease the vigor of the vine. And uh, three more short excerpts, simply because I like them. The grape is so wonderfully responsive to good care, however, that no true lover of fruit will profane it with neglect, but will seek, rather, to give it a favorable situation 
its choice of soils, and such generous care as will ensure strong, vigorous, productive vineyards and choicely good fruit. When all goes well, however, the amazing energy of nature is nowhere better seen among plants than in the growth of the grape, so that much of the care is in the use of the knife. In fact, as we shall see, the grape almost lives by the knife the first two years out. Many varieties, if vigorous, will set some fruit in this second summer, but the crop should not be allowed to mature. The sooner removed, the better, as fruiting at this stage of growth seriously weakens the young vines. So where does this leave us this morning? I wish I could just download my thoughts to you over like a hundred gigabyte per second network or something. We'd sure be out of here a lot sooner. I will attempt, however, to highlight some points of application that I believe are here for us. First, let's review the first several chapters of John 15 again. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And listen to these in context of what we just learned about the great golden vine and about the art of pruning in a vineyard. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you, ab if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If Jesus is the vine and the eleven are the branches, you are the fruit. I am the fruit. We are the fruit together. Jesus was clearly speaking to the eleven about how they would branch off from him, be fruitful, and propagate his body, the church. Fruitfulness was coming for sure because they had been pruned by the master gardener and were growing in the true vine. Propagation was coming for sure as they abided in him, not thinking that Jesus' words in them was, were now somehow actually their own words and becoming proud and trying to establish their own vine. Next, I think we can define the term fruit a little uh, more, with a little more uh, wisdom now in the context of this passage. I think fruit here equals disciple. 
This is not merely about how much, or I should say this passage is not merely about how much you are or aren't reading the word, praying, attending Sunday school or church. All of these things are important and foundational, but we're talking here about the Great Commission, about making more disciples, which can only be done by following the procedures described here in this passage and by, and by allowing God to continue tending to his growing vineyard. And this will continue to include the pruning process in our lives. In fact, not only are we in one sense fruit, but as we mature, we are also to become branches, a place for future fruit to grow into the true vine. Next, quickly consider how from this perspective that this is not really a passage you, to be used to beat yourself up when you feel like you've lost your fruitiness. What can I say? Nor is it a passage to be used to allow yourself to become puffed up or haughty when you think you're doing great things for the Lord. And this, uh, this next point of application is the one I need the most. All good gifts are from God. Think you know a lot. Think you're capable. Think that your fruit is sweet. Be careful. You and I have no utility in the kingdom of God outside of that which God has masterfully planted in you and continues to grow in you. In other words, we don't learn the concepts of Jesus' teaching in a classroom setting or from a textbook and then go apply them according to our human ability. As if we've completed some sort of job training courses and now we're ready for employment. He was your true vine yesterday. He's your true vine today. He'll continue to be your true vine tomorrow. Simply abide in him. We practice that as I get to my next page. Okay. I'll put this last point very simply. It's about him. Unity in his body, the thing I know I have been called to promote, called by God to promote, must begin with and be sustained by a healthy, vertical perspective. Now, I'd like to leave you with an image that I came across in the great growing book that we looked at a little earlier. I usually don't place a lot of meaning in random objects that just happen to have certain features or shapes that could be construed as religious symbols that should initiate a spiritual response. But I just couldn't leave this picture alone. So at the expense of coming across like the, uh, that lady who found the Jesus 
face on the tortilla. Um, I, I trudge forward and, and leave you with this uh, picture. Now, I was told, I asked in the first service, did this speak for itself? And I got a response like, not really. So I'm going to, I'll explain to you what I saw. I saw a cross at the top with fruit at its, at its foot. And after having spent a week of struggling, learning, revising, you know, and finally getting a, a point driven home to me, I couldn't leave this picture out. It just spoke multitudes to me. I cannot wait to experience that true and unhindered corporate unity as this world is just shed away with you and with all who have ever believed in Christ, praising God at the throne of the Lamb. I look forward to that. Now, one final comment. Don't miss the point. God is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. God the Son. God the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, He is the one who witnesses to us and through us the truth of the gospel and ensures that there will be lasting fruit. That great multitude around the throne praising the Lamb forever and ever. Amen.